Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How you doing and welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast bringing you news and tech from around Ireland and across the world. Every Friday evening on RT Radio as well, or of course you can get it first anytime you like with your favourite podcasting app from Spotify, uh, Apple or Google or wherever you get podcasts. Uh, on the show this week we're talking about travel returning and I'm not just talking about Ryanair and flights, I'm talking about something out of this world, literally. Uh, the epic Apple battle, the hottest rumour of the week is so cool can't wait to share this with you and also Google have announced their plans for working from home which we're quite impressed with to chat about it all I'm joined by our editor in chief Niall Kitson how are you Niall? Not too bad now I mean you're you're after I actually can can I mention something that's cool but not really and I know what you're going to mention and I was (laughs) this is the coolest thing ever go on tell everybody that's not going nuts. For anyone that watches Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., oh. uh, season six, episode three is called, now, I mean, this this shows how rare my surname is. Uh, the episode is called Fear and Loathing on Planet Kitson. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I, I can assure you Planet Kitson is very neat and tidy in reality, but I had a look at the trailer and it looks like an awful place altogether. But, you know, it's it's fake news. Fake news, I, people. I hope that you are going to download the artwork for Fear and Loathing on Planet Kitson and use it on everything. On your Twitter, well, on your Facebook, on your profiles. That's that's just the new image. It's, it's probably there to be done, isn't it? That's my new background. <laughs> that's my new Zoom background. Planet Kitson. So listen, uh, let's talk about uh, Google working from home. What do you think of the new uh, plans been announced? Yeah. Now, here's the interesting thing. All the Q1 results have come out and all the tech giants have done fantastically well. Um, no, they haven't done fantastically well. They have done disgustingly well. Okay, it yes. really is. When you when you see the numbers that they've been churning over thanks to COVID, it's just like, you know, whatever. Yeah. Every cloud have are having a silver lining, but I mean, it was just ridiculous, the amount of money. Yeah, I mean, uh, AWS, their revenues are up 32%. Google, theirs were up 34%. Amazon. Um, they're, they're all doing spectacularly they, well. Listen, I have nothing COVID. wrong with them doing well. It's just the fact that they did well out of COVID is kind of like... Uh, Anyway, well, yeah. So now we are we are reaching sort of the I don't want to say end game, but the light at the end of the pandemic is approaching. Uh, companies that are, you know, put in place um, contingency plans uh, are now sort of reevaluating them. Now that people are are getting vaccinated, they will be available to uh, to work from offices again uh, in a couple of months time. So what do you do? Twitter uh when everything kicked off said okay that's fine people you can work from home forever. Uh the public service I think they're on uh, the idea will be that they will be able to work from home 20% of the time uh on top of being able to ask for remote working mm. and and that sort of thing as well. Um of course we have the our rural future plan which is designed to get people out of the cities and get them working in uh, regional hubs, which is a fantastic idea that we've we've endorsed many times uh, on the show. But uh, now Google has come out and they've said, "Okay, uh, right, it's it's time you all started coming back into work." Uh, not immediately, 
uh, I think uh, when is it dusty? Is it is it September October? They're they're Later looking into the getting year, people yeah. back in. Yeah, uh, so it's coming. They're going to ask people to come back in the office. Mm. Uh, but there are a few there are a few wrinkles in there. Well, you've you've got them on paper. I wouldn't call them wrinkles. I I think this is really good. You're obviously not impressed. Um, uh, they've said that you can split your time between home and office, and naturally it will depend on what team you're working on, what project you're working on. Uh, because being in the office may make more sense, or if it doesn't, then you have the choice of doing maybe two days from home, three days in the office. That's kind of their plan. Yeah. They, they also have, and this is the bit that I really like, is that they're going to introduce a thing where you can work for up to four weeks away from wherever your home normally is or wherever your office normally is. Okay, so so here's the thing, right? My, my take on these... Um, Wonderful offices that mm. multinationals are incredibly good at developing um, because there's a talent shortage. So naturally, they want to attract the best people. Of course, these are places that are designed to keep you in them for as long as possible and not have you mind. That's that's the goal of them. They're not giving you snacks because they think you're awesome. They're giving you snacks because there aren't so many people out there that can do your job and they want to hang on to you for as long as possible. I guarantee you that as soon as the labor shortage in the tech sector is uh, addressed, offices will be getting a lot more basic. I'm saying that now, mark my words. Mm-hmm. Anywho, uh, so by saying, okay, you can work up to four weeks away, it doesn't matter where you are from. Um, can you imagine going on holidays? You see, that's where you, you're you painting that like a negative thing. Can you imagine going on holidays and having to take your work with you? Is that where, where you're going? Basically, yeah. All right. Now, let me put it to you another way, right? Imagine going on your holidays and being able to extend that holiday because you can continue to work. So um, if you have four weeks and you want to go to Australia, you don't want to go to Australia for two weeks. That's a bummer. All right. But what mm-hmm. if you could go to Australia and take your first two weeks as holidays and then the second two weeks you would work during the day as usual, yet you still have your evenings and your weekends off to do Aussie type things. OK. Put another snag on the Barbie mate. <laughs> but what if you're like, you know, a regular person? And you realize that you've got two weeks holidays, but you've got a further four hanging over you where you can't do Aussie type things. You just have to, you know, find an office space somewhere and do exactly what you would normally do. I, uh, I'm, I'm very much on the opposite side to you on Nile uh, on this. In fact, HubSpot do it even better. They will give you up to three months uh, outside of the office to work wherever it is that you want. Obviously, with agreement with with all parties. But where yeah. I see this and where I, I've seen this is people who are based in Ireland working for HubSpot, uh, but would be from the states. And particularly with COVID, they're able to go mm. back to the states, all right, and they're able to work mm. there for a month or or two months. That is amazing. And people are strung all over the world. The amount of people I know now that are kind of, well, living permanently in Australia. Uh, I know quite a few people who are over in Asia, but they come back. Dubai is a great example. All right. Everybody comes back at least once a year from Dubai. Uh, People who are in the States or Canada, they always come back. Um, And instead of coming back for a weekend, as many people I know in New York would or Boston, well, why not come back for a week or two weeks? 
I think it's great. Okay. And the only the only reason that the, uh, they have the three month uh, restriction in there is because you're into all kinds of EU employment law about well, where do you conduct the work uh, dictates where you pay your taxes, and once you go over the three months, it starts to make complicated things complicated. Whereas yeah, essentially, yeah, I, I remember during the ash cloud, mm. if you remember that in the in the oh. last decade, there was an awful lot of concern over that that people were through no fault of their own mm. overstaying. And having to um, having to declare okay. income and pay tax on it. So, would it be fair to say then that uh, between yourself and myself, if we were Google employees, that I would be the one going, "Yay, let's go and explore the world and do our work while we're at it," and you'd be the one saying, "No, I want to stay at home with the cat." Uh, well, there's nothing wrong with my cat, first of all. Um, yeah, I'm. I see. I'm just. I'm always concerned. Because these companies want to keep you in the office as much as possible. They want to keep you productive yeah. for as much as possible. Well, I mean, and perhaps that's not, you know, uh, any business wants their people to be as productive as possible. But I, I think they couch these things in terms that sound benign. But the work will always be there for you. It doesn't, you know, you will find that it doesn't matter when you go on holiday, the work will be there when you get back. Um, Netflix, I think, is a good example. They don't Mm -hmm. have um, actual holidays as such. You can take time off whenever you want. Uh, Sounds great in theory. You know what? The same work is going to be there when you get back. And if you're hammered, uh, hammered work with work before you go on holidays, you're going to be double hammered by the time you get back in the office. Now, speaking of holidays and travel. And yes. venturing gently upon the Ryanair.com website. All right. <laughs> What's your cancellation policy if I have to? No, you can change. <laughs> it's fine. Um, our, our friend Jeff Bezos likes to think a little bit bigger than Ryanair or British Airways or Willie Walsh or any, any of the heads in aviation because he uh, has got his own airline, if you want to call it that, called Blue Origin. And he mm-hmm. is selling a seat on the first Blue Origin flight into space. Yeah, take that, Elon Musk. <laughs> uh, basically, what he's doing is he's doing an online auction at the moment. All right. Uh, they're going to do their uh, initial flight, I think, sometime in July. And there's one seat like free on it, uh, as mm-hmm. it were. And they're saying, well, if somebody wants to bid for it, well, they're welcome to come along for the ride. Um And they're doing an online auction up to May the 19th. The winner will be announced on June the 12th and the flight uh, will be on July the 20th. And uh, all the money is going to charity. And you were saying, take that Elon Musk. But actually, Elon Musk is doing the same thing, where instead of having one seat, he's doing an entire SpaceX flight up into orbit uh, with, I think, four people on it. And uh, all of the money from the four seats goes to a, a, a children's charity, I think. Okay, right. Good, good for those guys. So so. I'm just thinking, yeah, if you, if you want to expand yourself past Spain. <laughs> <laughs> there are options out there. That's one uh, way. Beyond Spain, I'm thinking of going to, you know, Cork or Tipperary <laughs> or, you know, Leitrim. <laughs> that's that's my level of of ambition at the moment. But there hopefully go. by the there time this show goes out, we'll we'll know a little bit more. Hopefully we will. Hopefully we will. Listen, uh, I've I've got a great, great, great rumoury gossip for you. But first, uh, let's okay. talk about uh, Apple and Epic. Yeah. This is just in the numbers are blowing. Have you been through the numbers that Epic have been giving for for the games? Well, Epic. Okay, 
Can we can we do the background? Yeah, do the background. Yes. Sorry, sorry. I'm jumping. Okay. I'm jumping in, and I'm assuming everybody knows. Yeah, give us the background. Yeah. Here's here's the background. Uh, Epic Games, developers of Fortnite. Um, of course, we're it's a cross-platform game, so you can play it on pretty much, um, you know, Xbox, PC, um, uh, PlayStation, uh, and of course on your phone. Uh, and it's a session-based game. You go in, you play an hour with your mates, and you get kicked out when you get killed, and all this sort of thing. And it's it's massively, massively popular. And Epic went to Apple and said, "Do, do you know what? We've got our own kind of." virtual currency here we, we don't really need your your payment system can we can we get a deal here to which apple said well no um it's our payment system you have to use it uh we don't really care if it's your own virtual currency or whatever but you have to use our payment system to which epic said well hang on well, well let's try something else then why, why are we paying you so much in developer fees to which apple said because and they <laughs> uh, to which uh, epic said well why not uh, or why? And Apple said, because. So uh, this has gone to court now. Uh, Apple pulled Fortnite from the uh, App Store. App Store. Um, Epic has said, this is completely unfair. You're acting like a monopoly. Uh, you have a monopoly in the app space. Uh, therefore, we want to dismantle that. We want people to mm. be able to negotiate better terms than the current 30% Apple takes on payment processing. Um mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, what you're doing is also putting pressure on other services that would perhaps look to compete with you. So um, that's that's the background. This has gone to court now. Uh, the buzz is that Epic is kind of not quite onto a loser, but should be looking towards uh, a lengthy appeals process as opposed to um, uh, a, a decision that would help them. Uh, so you've got the further details, Dusty. Well, just the numbers. I, I think Epic... Hmm. I think they're both correct. It's Apple's system. They should be able to charge what they want. Okay. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when you look at the numbers, you kind of go, whoa, hang on a minute. All right. Um, Fortnite made Epic $9 billion in 2018 and 2019. All yeah. right. Now, that, that, that it's a lot of money. I'm fair play to them if they made and developed and did, did, don't care. Right. But what Apple are saying is they want 30% of that $9 billion. Essentially, they want... $3 billion, you know, just for making it available on the App Store. That's you know what? insane. Say- what I, was, I was saying a, a few minutes ago about the profits during COVID from these big te- tech companies. Tech companies are obscene. That's hmm. obscene. Yeah. Yeah, and it just shows the, the move towards services that we've seen in the last few years. People are hanging on to their phones longer, uh, but it's all about the services that you can use on them. Uh, and I think mm. this is a fantastic example. Like if Fortnite had flopped, do you think we would be having this case right now? Oh, I think so. Absolutely. Yeah. Because really? I mean, Fortnite, oh yeah, Fortnite aren't the only ones. I mean, Spotify have got a huge problem. And, yeah, and well, I, I understand it, like, there's various costs in any business. Okay. So you've got distribution mm-hmm. costs and you've got advertising costs and you, you've got uh, marketing, whatever. Okay. Um, essentially, uh, what Spotify are saying is, is that if our cost to be part of Apple is 30% of what we make. All right. That's mm-hmm. a huge chunk. All right. Um, whereas Apple are doing the same service, but of course they don't have to pay that 30% to be on the app store or to provide mm-hmm. the service. So, you know, it's way too much of a competitive advantage to Apple. And I think where people are coming in and they're saying is Apple phones are so popular around the world. It's like they've gone past just being a brand 
they're almost getting into a, a utility size, if you like. And when you get that big, you need to be more careful about what you charge or you're seen more as a public service than you are as a commercial entity. Does that make sense? Uh, it, well, your argument makes sense. I'm not sure okay. I agree with it. But, well, it's like, it's like uh, Facebook. Okay, argument. so Facebook is the social media platform that, I, mm. of course, there are other social media platforms you can of use. Of course. But the vast majority of people are, are on Facebook. So should Facebook be allowed to control how the majority of people on this little planet use social media? Or should there be some kind of an independent board looking at it? Well, by their by their own admission, there should be, and they actually have one. Uh, I know they have one, and they did the Donald Trump uh, uh, thing this did, week yeah. as well. Yeah, they, they maintained his ban. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think uh, what was I was a very nice argument about that. They said that was going to be a lose lose for Facebook. <laughs> Mm, yeah. So if they put Trump back on, uh, they, nobody would be happy. And if they if they kept him off, nobody would be happy or whatever. So they said the great thing about having that independent board was Facebook could just go, not our problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The independent it, people it's said decision. so. It's up for review, I think, in six months. Uh, so mm. it's not an absolute ban. Uh, but I have a feeling that they'll uphold it. I think, I think people are hoping that Trump will just sort of slink into the shadows and become, you know, Less relevant and less of a pain in the neck, but we can I don't also think hope that's for the man's style. We can hope for an end to global warming or world peace. We shall continue. Um, but back to Epic and their battle mm. in the courtroom with Apple. I think Apple taking thirty percent of somebody, you know, kind of that big. It's. I think Epic have got a case. Um, the numbers on other games, though, it's interesting to see how these these people think and work and stuff like that with the numbers. Uh, mm-hmm. Epic paid, uh, I think it was one and a half billion dollars for a game called Batman Arkham. Uh-huh. In fact, actually, I think it was a series of games. And what they did was they gave it away to for free. They yeah. literally paid Warner, I think it was, one and a half million. OK, that's great. We'll take that. And then we just give it away for free. All right. Mm. So Epic got... Uh, 600,000 new accounts from that. That was about to 250 in an account or something like that. And when mm-hmm. you're thinking about marketing and uh, all of that kind of, you're thinking about, well, how much is it costing me to acquire a new user? $2.50 mm. is not bad. Considering like, you know, you would pay on average maybe a euro per click on Google just to get somebody to look at your website. To have mm. somebody signed up and in the system with their details and all that kind of stuff, uh, uh, very good. But it does... For, for people who are kind of like living normal lives like you and I, it's like, you spent what? <laughs> 1.5 million and gave it away? That's insane. So it is telephone numbers, but I don't know. I think I, I think fair play to Epic and they should be allowed to keep their money. And so should Spotify. I'm very much on that. Yeah, the, on well, Spotify side. is an interesting case because uh, there is a direct competitor in Apple Music sitting on iPhones already, which comes with a three-month free trial. Uh, and the EU is already on Apple's case. They've mm. said that this is anti-competitive behavior and they've actually charged Apple uh, with that. So uh, Apple will be going to court to de- defend their position. I think Spotify's case is much, much stronger because there is a direct competitor uh, on the iPhone. If it was a matter of, you know, there is a Fortnite clone or Apple had something that was very similar to Fortnite that they had developed themselves, uh, I would certainly consider them to be to be in very hot water over that. Mm. But um, the fact that Apple has a directly competing product with Spotify, uh, I think is um, 
great. It's seriously anti-competitive, really. You know, similarly, the way that you can only use the iOS app store, you can't use a third-party app store uh, on the iPhone. Um, that's that's another you know point of uh, point of legal point that should be explored as well. Of course, Apple will say you know we provide a superior service than say Google Play. You know we 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 got better privacy, better security, um, better reliability, better quality of app I, overall. Uh, and as somebody who who uses Android, you, you'd have to agree with that. Mm. Oh, listen, I, I, I totally agree with that. And Apple have costs and, and running it within the App Store and stuff. And I think where the US authorities and the EU authorities are coming from, they're going, yes, but you've got to weigh up the cost of running your App Store with mm. the cost of, you know, kind of what you're taking in. And yeah. one of the claims that have been made is that Apple is making near on 80% profit on the App Store. Mm. So it's only yeah. cost, out of everything it makes in the App Store, it's only costing 20% of that to actually run the service. The other 80% is just money in the bank. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's, it, as you say, it's been an exceptionally strong year for services um, for cloud. Yeah. Thanks to, uh, thanks yeah. To yeah. I, mm, anyway, that, that's, that's what's happening with uh, Epic and Apple. And that is a case that is going to go on. And in fact, the EU case is going to go on, I think, as well, with the yeah. uh, charge of breaking anti-competition rules. Um, last story for you today, Niall, uh, the hottest rumour of the week. Okay, hit me. Hottest rumour of the week. Uh, well, actually, probably a few, the last few weeks. Uh, one, a reliable analyst, a Chinese guy, I won't bother with his name, um, but he has come out in the past and has a good track record of saying what Apple are up to and what is coming from Apple. Mm-hmm. And he is saying that they are working on a foldable phone. Okay. Now, these things have been out and there's been, but he is the most reliable person to date to have come out and also said that. So it's, right. it's, it's kind of at that level where if he says it, it's true. Okay. So are we talking foldable in like the Microsoft Duo or foldable in the Samsung, uh, you know, say. are we looking to expand to increase the screen size by default or to make the phone smaller? If you, if you see where I'm coming, like is, is I the see where you're coming lane, from. I think yeah. it's to make the screen bigger um, from the rumors that are around. It's going to be an eight inch phone which is going mm. to be, you know, kind of in and around the side, maybe even bigger than the smartphones we're used to at the moment. Now, whether mm. that's an 8-inch yeah. phone when it's folded or whether it's an 8-inch phone when it's opened, I don't know. Oh, it'd have to be when it's open because, they, you know, tablets start at 7 inches. Okay, good point. I agree with you. Um, mm. They say that the phone should be on sale by 2023. Hmm. So we can probably expect an announcement late next year. Right. Um, here's the thing that will just make you laugh hmm? because it made me smile. Uh, the other rumour is that the screen that Apple are going to put into this wonderful foldable phone will be made by Samsung. By Samsung. <laughs> <laughs> so if you would like the Apple foldable phone, go out and get yourself a Samsung phone right now. <laughs> 
and you will pretty much have it. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, listen, that is the news for this week. Now, thanks for keeping us up to date on everything. Do remember uh, that we also keep you up to date every single day of the week on all things tech with hourly updates and daily newsletters. You can grab those for free with our compliments on the website at techcentral.ie. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. At this stage, you're familiar with the term Industry 4.0, which is using technologies like automation, robotics, 5G and data science to make factories smarter and more efficient. Last month in Ireland, Confirm, the Science Foundation of Ireland Research Centre for Smart Manufacturing, opened the doors on its state-of-the-art 5G innovation testbed at the University of Limerick. This is where companies can collaborate with researchers to create new wireless network solutions. Professor Colin McCarthy is Director of Confirm and he spoke to Niall Kitson about his views on the future of manufacturing. So Connor, there was an original vision for what what Confirm would look like as a a centre, I guess sort of a a product of its times in many ways. Uh, We're a few years on from it. So to what extent has that vision been uh, fulfilled and perhaps even uh, surpassed? Yeah, thank you. So, so thank you, Niall. The, the Confirm Centre was set up in 2016 with a, a vision around, uh, really around Industry 4.0 uh, and cyber physical manufacturing systems and digital, digital supply chains. And um, really, it was uh, an opportunity um, funded by SFI, Science Foundation Ireland. Um, we, we brought together, at the time, 42 industry partners and about 45 academics. And we, we had a lot of workshops around sort of what was uh, let's say academic push of novel ideas and novel technologies coming out from academia and the research uh, in the universities and institutes of technology. And then we, we, we call that, let's say, the academic push. And then industry, we're looking at, well, we want this or we need this or we like this or this is too far out of scope or this is too far down the line or whatever. So we, we arrived at a sort of a research program based around sort of the sweet spot between academic push and industry pull. And we, we kind of crafted sort of a research program around that. And, and really what we came out there was the research needed to work with industry around smart products, smart machines, smart production systems, and smart supply chains. So really that was the sort of initial um, piece of work. And then we, we, you know, we looked for the funding and we were very successful to get 25 million euro from SFI to build our research center. Uh, roll on a couple of years. Th- those are still the topics of our sort of our, our research, our, our applied research program with industry. However, the, the projects have. Um, so what happens is, is industry come to us then with particular problems in those domains. And what, what we do is then we work with industry around sort of a, a collaborative research agreement. And we have, uh, we you know, it's a collaborative research program with industry to solve problems in those domains. And that's an initiative process. And that takes, you know, in some cases up to, to a year to really articulate what the research is about um, and, and what, should, what, what the research question is. And then we work and then we bring in the academics who will then ultimately sort of deliver on those projects. And the projects sort of go into the into the operational phase where they actually carry out the research. And what's that, what does that mean? Really, what we do then is we hire researchers, uh, PhD students and postdoc researchers and senior research fellows to actually do the deliver the research with industry and that, that's um really exciting in, in so far as that sort of the, the research questions they, they start at a certain what we call trl level technology readiness level um 
where it might just be an idea or it might be a more mature idea. And we bring it up through to a higher tier, a higher TRL level. So I suppose you're about five years into, into that grand plan. So I imagine certain technologies have, uh, have improved and certain as uh, some have, uh, you know, uh, perhaps regressed or, or fallen out of favor at the moment. So what kind of uh, solutions have you found uh, grow to really fit this notion of Industry 4.0? Uh, I mean, I'm looking at virtual spaces as one example. Yes, so so I, I guess the, the the main what we're seeing at the moment is a, a big drive around sort of uh, factory data, factory and supply chain data, uh, and taking um, taking that data, capture well first of all capturing the data uh, in the right format, and then making sense of that data using statistical tools and so on. So we're we're seeing a lot of um, projects in industry trying to understand what, so all the machines are there, obviously uh, making the products and so on and capturing all this um, data. What we're seeing then is, can we derive derive sort of an understanding of what's happening in the manufacturing environment from that data? So what that requires you to do is, is to first of all, capture the data using sensors and then uh, make um, that data into information. And that requires lots of different techniques in terms of, you know, statistical models and data analytics, and then an understanding of the actual process itself. So the data is, you know, coming, it's just, you know, sets of numbers, if you like, coming from the sensors, but then turning that data into knowledge and to make decisions on that uh, knowledge based on the data is where the kind of art of the manufacturing piece comes in. So to understand the processes, you could be machining a part, or you could be, you know, polishing a part, or you could be doing anything, um, so the data needs to sort of be contextualized into what the, in, into the application that's generating that data and then to make decisions on that data. And we use a lot of sort of modeling tools then to make decisions on that data and, and hopefully to optimize then the, the process. One would also imagine that when you're adopting a, a, a data-based approach to manufacturing that it, it doesn't become a simple matter of rinse and repeat as traditional manufacturing uh, models would have been. So to which extent does this allow an element of, uh, of customization without having to recalibrate a, a, a manufacturing chain from beginning to end? Yeah, that's it. So, so I think that the research question would have started out back in 2016 as mass, this concept of mass customization, to your point, um, which is, you know, different, pro- well, different kind of flavors of the same product coming off the production line. So it's customized to my tastes or needs or to your tastes and your needs or whatever. And we see some of that, you know, in the mainstream, you, you can see, you know, uh, you can buy cans of Coca-Cola with your name on the side, you know, and, and there's just there's 20 different ver- twenty different names in a stall and you can pick the can that has your name on it and so on, chocolate bars and things. So that's kind of a little bit of customization. But this mass customization idea of every product being quite different is, is difficult to achieve because your systems have to adapt um, to, to make that product um, to your or my needs. And there's a whole sort of architecture around that. And that has been a sort of a, a mantra going for, you know, since 20, I guess since around 2012, really. That, But what we're seeing, and, and this is an interesting point from the pandemic, is the it, mass customization, yes, it's still there and still important. But another thing that's become equally important, which relies on the same type of technology, it is, it is sort of to, to do with kind of reconfigurability. So, you know, in the pandemic, we, we saw difficulties in, in getting PPE, for example, and um, and some of the reasons for that, you know, it's difficult for industry to just to reprofile their manufacturing lines to make rather than making, you know, 
particular clothing items to make PPE or something like that. So to, to reconfigure a manufacturing line is quite a difficult thing to do, especially in 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 a highly regulated environment, which Ireland is kind of very strong in in med tech and pharma and ICT and so on. Um, to reconfigure your manufacturing line, so there's a big move I, I see. Um, what kind of maybe started out as a mass customization journey has become a reconfigurability journey where we can we can reconfigure production lines to make different products based on customer demand, like the global pandemic had changed to PPE for a long time and then, you know, may change back now as, as things change and so on. So to be able to reconfigure production lines is seems to be an emerging topic that is very interesting. Of course, we're we're now uh, having to look at reconfiguring um, logistics uh, as well on account of uh, the fact that our our nearest trading partner is no longer uh, a member of the European Union. Have are companies coming to you uh, w- w- looking to explore problems to do with how to uh, improve the um, efficiency of uh, of logistics? Yeah, so that's really that has come, uh, and it's still it's still a still a major issue uh, around the sort of global supply chain, and um, we can see it. We can we can all see it uh, everywhere. You know, we go to the hardware shop; things are getting more expensive because the demands on, you know, different products, wood, for example, is getting scarce at the moment, and things like that. And that's all to do with supply chain. And we and so two things have happened uh, in in well a number of things have happened, but I suppose to me it's, it's COVID nineteen. And then Brexit. So even without COVID-19, Brexit has disrupted the supply chain. Um, so to the point, actually, that in the Confirm Centre, we, we, you know, we, we sort of chair the, the National Supply Chain Academic Network, which is set up just like about one month after COVID-19 um, well, um, hit, basically, to, to just to, to get some sort of academic sort of viewpoints on uh, COVID-19, uh, sorry, uh, academic view on supply chain and how we're going to meet the challenges of supply chain um, bottlenecks, if you like. So, you know, we've met the industry uh, over a number, a number of occasions with different workshops over the last year and a half around supply chain issues. So there is, you know, major things to be done on supply chain. So what you can do, the, the good news is, I suppose, that yes, there is there is bottlenecks in supply chain. The good news is that as we become a more digitalized society and digitalized manufacturing base, that you can now... Uh, Reroute, you know, you can you can actually in supply chains you can look at different models of rerouting, for example. So you know, as the ports move, you know, we don't know we don't like the UK not been such a, an accessible land bridge, for example. Um, can you reroute into directly into Europe? And you can see Rosslare opening up that 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 sort of line into France, and that's a rerouting issue. But you know, you have to think about the product itself has to be rerouted. So there's a huge ecosystem around that. That needs to be taken care of. How you know a lot of paperwork in some cases and so on, and that has to be dealt with. So as we move to a more digitalized society, we, we can see um, supply chains, um, you know, becoming more digitalized. That means you can reroute stuff much quicker, and we can we can build models that look at that particular rerouting and sort of um, all that all that sort of activity around supply chain. So I think in the future, as we become and you know, one good reason to be more digitalized is that we we can understand the demands for products as well. So it's not just about the movement of the product from one country to another or movement of parts that make a product from one country to another. It's also around the demand signals coming from coming from industry, coming from the consumer. If there's a huge demand in one particular area that the supply chain lights up and is, is alerted to that particular change in demand and can respond then. And that's where all this information and digitalization in the factory and supply chain need to be connected. So if we see you know, consumer peaks in certain products that we can respond or different 
factories in the world can maybe say, okay, you know, we're going to have to, you know, start making product X now because there's a huge demand in Europe for that at the moment and it's going to be there for the next eight, 18 months or something. So let's reconfigure this production to make that product for this time. So I, I, I see a world in the future being much more agile and responsive to changes in consumer demands. Uh, and that will be enabled by digitalization in supply chain and the factory. The factories have to know that they need to change tack, if you like, um, to, to respond to certain uh, peaks. in, And then also looking at the supply chain sort of, you know, uh, you know, a lot of the, the business models, um, another way to think about supply chain is the business model. So a lot of, you know, toys, a lot of stuff is made, you know, for, for just like, like, you know, toys, for example, the model is, you know, make lots and lots of toys in, in, in you know, Asian countries and so on. Uh, so the, the business model is make as much of product as you can as cheap as possible and then high, high, high shipping cost into Europe and sell them in Europe. But as the models change, you know, we're looking at a more of a sort of localized manufacturing industry and moving back towards like the cottage industries of the past where we make product locally um, um, for local demand. So, so rather than sort of, you know, doing everything in one part of the world, you know, uh, designing in one part of the world, manufacturing in another part of the world, distributing it in a different part of the world and sales in a different part of the world, we can see maybe a world where it's much more localized. Um, so we can make sort of batch products locally for that particular market. And I think that's a very interesting concept because what that does, it allows us to think about sort of reinvigorating our city. So this concept of urban manufacturing, for example, where, you know, at the moment, manufacturing it happens, you know, at the outskirts of towns and, and sort of, you know, uh, in large greenfield sites because basically production lines are large, they're, they're horizontal, the, the, the product is, is mass produced along these production lines. As we move to a more agile society or manufacturing base, I think we're going to see more bespoke manufacturing where, you know, we can put maybe some manufacturing in city centres to rejuvenate, you know, as you know, a, lot of, a lot of, you know, the shopping and so go, goes online and, um, we, we can see maybe, well, let's, re, you know, reinvigorate the city centres with some manufacturing activities where we can make, okay, we won't make a big, we won't make a, a car in a city centre building, but we might make some a contact lens, for example, or some parts of, of the manufacturing process can happen in city centres. So I see a world in the future where we can actually start to look at manufacturing being much more local and in cities and, and servicing local communities, in that type of model or kind of factory in a box model or sort of, factories in, in, in city centres and so on. So I think that's an interesting concept we're looking at and confirm at the moment as well. Part of the technologies, I suppose, that that would make that happen really is the advent of 3D printing, which is very much, a, it seems to be a, a much cleaner alternative to, to sort of what people imagine manufacturing is at the moment, like using, you know, lots of heavy materials, lots of, you know, lots of things like cement and metals and all this sort of thing. Um, Whereas 3D printing offers a, a, a much cleaner alternative. Um, to what extent do you see 3D printing playing a role in getting these factories into, you know, smaller spaces that it will almost be a, a matter of a, a, an automated facility where you can just feed in what you want and you'll, you'll get your product out in the quantity uh, that has been ordered? Yeah, so so 3D printing, and I suppose this the whole concept of um, not just 3D printing, but sort of additive manufacturing and subtractive manufacturing. So what we're used to really is we start off with a, a block of material and we remove material to end, end up with the final product. And there's definitely advantages for that uh, in terms of sort of mass production. It's it's quick. Um, the material, um, the, 
the, the material properties, you know, are, are sort of of the block material sort of remain in the in the new in the new product. Out of the manufacturing, then it's a different process. It is basically it it builds up the the shape using sort of a, a deposition of material in, in a layered format. So it's sort of it's like a printer in three D. It just it prints the material, and there's definitely advantages for that in, in terms of customization of products. You can geometry is no longer an issue. You can I can print a part. Um, and then a completely different part of the same material in, in the next batch. So there's definitely advantages to it. There's, there's also constraints in so far as the it's um, at the moment anyway. It, it's it takes more time to 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 make that part. So at the moment it seems to be for bespoke applications and very specialist applications. But it's moving more mainstream. But there is a constraint in terms of the time it takes to print a product. You know, so so it definitely has applications, and it, it, I see it. It's been used now in, in biomedical field, and it's been used in, uh, in gas turbine repair, and it's, it's from across the board. So it's definitely becoming more mainstream, and and it has definitely has advantages. I don't think we're going to have a world where we will completely uh, produce everything with three D printing. I think it'll be a, a hybrid. So you could imagine maybe a part, some of the you know, uh, maybe the main piece of the part maybe might be cast or, or produced in the normal way, and then you maybe add the customization using three D printing on top of that, and you could have a hybrid approach. So it definitely has uh, advantages. It won't be uh, the, uh, the panacea or a silver bullet that will solve all manufacturing and supply chain issues, but I think it definitely has a a, a niche um, field, and it, it seems to be becoming more mainstream. And a lot of stuff they do now is is they they can actually center, so they three D print parts and they can actually heat treat it then afterwards and they can make it very strong. So they're starting to overcome some of these limitations in terms of the strength of these particular uh, products as well, which is one of the drawbacks initially anyway of these products, the the, the strength of the materials because it's a layered structure and anybody who's interested in layered structures knows that these, uh, these things delaminate um, they're prone to delamination where, you know, you get a small crack in between two of the layers and that crack can actually run and, and form a thing called a delamination, which can weaken the product. Um, so that, that has been an issue, but now they're overcoming that with sintering techniques and so on. So we're starting to see some very strong products coming out from 3D printing. So I think it definitely has a, a, pl- a place in the future and it, it definitely overcomes some of the challenges of supply chain because you can manufacture locally, um, you know, to a certain, all you need to do is download the the the, the CAD drawing essentially of the, pro- the part and press print and it'll print the part for you. So it has, definitely has advantages. Bringing things back to the, the shop floor, if you will, at, at Confirm, you've recently opened uh, a new 5G testbed. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, how that is working out and the kind of applications you expect to see from it? Yeah, so, so this is a, a, good, a really good example of sort of a key enabling technology that will help underpin different projects with different industries. So the 5G network itself, it's, it's a private 5G network and it basically designed really to enable projects to happen. And the advantage really of it is that it's, I mean, it's like any sort of wireless communication system, it, it's it's wireless, it's a hub on the wall, so you don't see too much about it. But what, what you, you get is the speed of the connectivity, but also the density of the connectivity. And what I mean by that is so... For a manufacturing operation, you might have a production line. You could have five or 6,000 sensors on a production line, all in close, close proximity to each other. And so those sensors are, you know, if they're communicating wirelessly uh, to a 5G network to, to get the data up into a central position so you can make decisions on the data and you can control the production line, you know, those, those sensors interfere with each other and so on. So the beauty about 5G networks is that they, the density of sensing you can have 
uh, in in a particular. So you can get it. So it's not it's not just the speed of transmission of the data, which is very important, by the way, but it's it's also the density of the number of nodes you can have on the system, and that's very attractive from a manufacturing point of view. And again, it won't be a, a silver bullet or a panacea that will solve all problems. It might have to be used in conjunction with other systems like wired systems or even uh, Wi-Fi six, for example. So it, it'll be a case of what's best for the application. And you might need some 5G sensing ap- applications where you need very fast transfer data and high node density, high sensor density in, in case of manufacturing. But that could be coupled with wired information coming in from wired sensors, uh, also with uh, Wi-Fi 6 and so on. So I think we see a world in the future where it won't just be 5G, uh, it'll be a combination of you know Wi-Fi, wired and 5G and, and, and anything in between there. So it's going to be, um, an interesting thing. So the types of projects we, that we have already looked at is is and so we just got this installed in, in sort of you know last late last year. So it's early days. But what we're trying to to do, we we have run robots now, sort of um, what we call um, collaborative robots off the five G network. So very fast transfer of data to that robot. So there's nothing. The, the robot's powered. It's 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 on a kind of a called an AI an AIG. So it's 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 moving on a pla- a mobile platform and it's receiving its control signals from the 5G network. So there's a battery, the whole thing is powered by a battery. If you can imagine it, it looks basically like a you know a trolley with wheels and it, it's been and has a sort of a, a collaborative robot, a robot arm on top. And essentially it moves around and can do an operation, but that gets control it's it's receiving its control messages wirelessly through a 5G network. So it's been controlled by by a network, a 5G network. And, and and that's that's a very exciting development as we go forward to the future factory where we're going to have lots of robots working in collaboration with humans. So we're going to need lots of sensing capability to detect. A, for, so, so the robot systems, it's to do with safety ultimately, but the ro- robot systems can detect um, detect the presence of a danger, uh, detect sort of hazards in the factory and also detect the uh, factory environment and also, most importantly, um, detect the humans and because the humans are moving you know, they're not static in the factory so the robot might be moving and the human might be moving and uh, the robots need to be able to detect the humans and, and be able to react accordingly to make sure they don't you know uh, interact with the human in terms of a collision or something like that so really fast sensing capability is really important there and that's going to be where 5G I think will play a big role uh, when we have sort of humans and, and robots collaborating in the future factory. And that was Professor Conor McCarthy, Director of Confirmed Chatting with Niall Kitson. That's it for our show this week. Do remember you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website techcentral.ie or listen to us each week online or Fridays with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson, thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.